0: Welcome to the 1080 Outdoors podcast. This is episode 63, and we are entering a, oh, we're getting close, man. We are getting close to the dance and to all the beautiful magic. This is covering um, the week of October 19th through the 25th for our updates. And we are also joined by land manager, um, well-known land manager, Jake Ellinger, I hope I pronounced that right, I know I had a a weird, I pronounced it really wrong, let me get into this podcast with him, Um, he corrected me, so Jake uh, resides in Michigan, he does uh, heavy land management for heavily pressured properties, Uh, Michigan has a lot of pressure, similar to Wisconsin, similar to um, Minnesota, uh, in the Midwest here, Pennsylvania, Heading out east. So he has had his property since like 1981 or something. So he's like put knocking on like 40 years of management on this property, 63 acres. Um, he killed a really nice, his biggest buck to date, I think, a 156, he said, uh, opening weekend in Michigan, which was that first. I think he did, think he did it on the second day, so October 2nd. Um, so we go into a lot of that. We also cover, um, a ton of, a ton of some just small property tactics. So like his first aha moment owning and managing his property, he really, he really likes the conifer plantings. So we get into where he plants them, how he plants them, what specific conifer, um, you know, his, his very tedious developing of the doe and buck bedding areas and specifically making them a little bit different and putting them in specific, in, in exact places, um, and then obviously we get into how he harvested that awesome buck on October second. And um, last few questions I asked him was the one thing that he should have—he would give the viewers and listeners um, advice on to maximize their hunting success this year, and then um, the top tactics to really to really hone in on a big buck here the last couple of weeks of October. So before we get into his interview, that that will be coming shortly. Um, I want to get into the the recap of the last week and, uh, for any new listeners, what we, what we what we've been doing here is, is doing a little bit of weather report, hunt report for the upcoming week. We try to get these out on Mondays so you can, you can hopefully make some type of formulation of a plan heading into the week. Um, if you are a weekend warrior, you know, we'll list out a couple days this weekend that look the best. And then if you're just hunting, um, whenever, um, I'll pick three of the best days this week to hunt. Um, and then we'll go over a little, some of the ideas of, and theories behind um, what we're doing um, this this week. So um, this is for the week of October 19th through the 25th. So we're getting close. I'd say I really start taking things um, really seriously. the 20, I would say that next week, um, 26th through the 31st. Is when I will actually start kind of hunting. Um, uh, I wouldn't say blindly, but um, not off trail cam data. So right now I'm still kind of on um, waiting to see a mature buck daylight and then moving in on them. I, I, I think still we're we're in that time frame. Even last week with a really good cold front, that uh, you got to be careful because they're still they're still in their home range. They're still starting to get a little riled up. Um, so recap for me last week is I missed it. I missed the action so I had I had some uh inkling of where these bucks were i've I've kind of lost them like I like I usually do in October. Uh, we have some we have some big timber that I hunt around and I think they just they hide it they, they kind of tuck in there and 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 hammer the acorns in in October and it takes that I think first few cold fronts in october to really get them back to where i'm getting them my camera again same thing true this year um i have cell cams out i had a cell cam out in the area of where i did end up finding out there was a ton of action that i missed on um and it just didn't it didn't pick up it picked up a couple bucks and i was and i was suspicious of it um never had the right wind to hunt that area almost went after well, almost went in there one morning just because i just i i just had a feeling because we'd had some pictures on that cell cam of a couple of mature bucks and i'm like i just think they're in there because i'm not getting them anywhere else everywhere else is dead we actually did hunt thursday morning in an area swinging a miss didn't see anything so kind of pulled out because thursday was really a good day and then thursday afternoon the wind was just questionable for the spot i wanted to sit um and then i, I him and hawed I, I went to the one spot and the wind wasn't right so i pulled out thursday afternoon and then headed over to a different spot and just couldn't i didn't trust the wind i guess um and i may have i may have missed my missed an opportunity to, to kill v-town because um, the cell cam went off at that location about 6 30 him walking out in the field um yeah it so it, it sucked so then i had even more suspicion so the next morning i was like all right i'm gonna go in there and sit an aggressive sit um in this new stand setup that we put in on an inside corner so for those of who for those of you that are new i hunt a farm that is 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 big egg but we're in we're in hill country so like picture our road that separates the property down the middle and the road is the high spot of the farm and then everything else just falls off so you have rolling egg fields that fall off into big timber and the timber is obviously the um low area so valleys and and steep hillsides um so accessing in the mornings can be difficult. You have to figure out where they are staging up that last, cause I'm trying to get in there an hour and a half, two hours before, um, shooting light. So trying to kind of figure out where they're staging those last hour, or two hours out in those fields and avoid them. Um, so I had, uh, it's just, it's just always an issue. Um, so walking back to get in that area and to get into a lot of areas in the mornings, is just, um, it's tough. You got to kind of be careful. I, I really, I sit and, uh, with my headlamp and I, I kind of, I look for eyes. Um, and I'm not afraid to just, just sit tight and, and leave. And that was the case on, on I believe it was Friday morning. Um, it was a good day. The wind was right. But when I hunt these these hillsides in the mornings, I want the wind to be sending out into those those valleys. So I'm actually I'm actually accessing with the wind in my back, and sometimes with the wind pushing off to the side. And I don't like doing that because you're getting that means that you're you're sending your scent um, in a lot of different places. So you're I mean you're obviously walking somewhere, you leave your scent there. But I'm, I'm, I mean when your wind stream's hitting you from the side, I I always think that 100 200 yards downwind, even when you're walking, gets affected if there's deer there. Um, so accessing through open egg fields when <laughs> they're probably out there and trying to get around them when possibly the wind's blowing at them is tough and we're still in that area where you know if it was if it was 10 10 days or we're getting into the 28th 29th 31st or first week of November a lot of times I'll access early early um, possibly even have someone drive a truck in to drop me off and just push those deer off into the woods and then kind of make a mad dash to a stand just and it's it sucks i've had I've you know i've had good luck doing it that way because you just they get pushed off by a vehicle it's a little bit less intrusive than than walking in um but in this scenario i didn't have that i i started walking in i <laughs> crested over a hill and and in an area that I had to get through in some way, shape, or form, I saw about 20 eyes looking at me. Um, And it was good because there's a ton of deer in there, and I know these bucks are in there now, um, but I I pulled out. It wasn't worth it yet. Um, So the situation is essentially the three bucks I'm chasing ended up I just pulled some more trail cameras in that area, and they ended up they're they're really they're really in this like sixty acre section, um, and I'm not getting them anywhere else on the farm, so I kind of have them what I believe to be cornered in this in this little section. Um, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna push in aggressively here this week, um, and probably throw some throw some sits at them. Possibly tonight, do a little. Uh, sit back, but actually um, if they do what they've been doing, if they're daylighting, I should be able to get a shot at them. Just It's not really ideal for those bedding areas around there with this wind, um, but I can get in and get out in the uh, for an afternoon sit relatively easily. Um, so if you picture afternoon sits on these type of farms, I keep the wind blowing at me for the most part if I'm not trying to get really aggressive. So I blow them back out towards the road and I enter and then exit, and then I'm not blowing it down into those hills um, where I think bedding is. And then mornings, I do like to flip the wind and hunt um, big, steep drop-offs or ditch systems where I can blow that wind out into a, a valley and let the thermals, once they start rolling, to catch it. And you get that tunnel effect. Um, and if you're up in a tree, that tunnel effect's happening above where the deer movement is, and you can get away with a lot in those mornings. just a matter of getting in there ideally people access, you know, a different farm I hunt, the new place we hunt, I can access, um, the opposite way and come in from the bottom. So you're, you're, I think that's more beneficial as you're, I mean, you're catching everything coming off the fields, getting back into those hills for bedding in those, in that timber. Um, so it's just, it's a struggle and people deal with it, you know, everywhere. And in this area in Southwest Wisconsin's, um, I'd say that's probably the the biggest challenge. Is if you don't have multiple access points, bottom and top, um, it it can be difficult. And you just gotta wade back. And I, I've learned that um, just being more cautious and waiting your time um, tends to to work out better. It sucks. Like I'd love to get a buck down before rut, just because it gets so so goddamn nerve wracking um, when you are doing all day sits, and it just it, it wears on a guy. Um, but I know they're going to be there just from previous years of history. Like I know they're not going anywhere. Like I'm going to get a shot at these deer at one, some point, if I just, just hit the edges, hit the edges, hit the edges. And then if the conditions are right, go in. Um, and honestly, a lot of times when I walk out and when I'm accessing in the mornings and the deer aren't there in the fields last few years, that has been a a good thing because that means that there's something that that's happened now i'm talking about first week of november but also i've had the same experience if you had if you got lucky and you got a hot doe in the last week of october if you're accessing and those deer aren't there where they've been all year staging before light comes just to go back to their beds and i call it you know it's a reverse staging of what they do in the afternoon they kind of stage in these areas um in ag fields where there's they're going to ease back into their bedding but um last couple of years when i've had some of my best hunts i've been able to get in because they aren't doing that because of something a doe popped and they've been getting harassed so bad at night that there's they they aren't just sitting feeding in the field um so that's that's another reason why i kind of just weighed my time and and um i go out there and i kind of check over things too I've been, I've been doing a lot of observation from the road from field roads just just kind of right at daybreak Kind of trying to get an idea of where they're at, where they're where they're staging up right before right before um, shooting light, um, and it's not easy. But also using trail cameras to figure it out, um, and also just acknowledge what the food source is. So like the area I'm in, it's alfalfa that's still green. There's some cut corn around there, recently cut cornfield that they're obviously heading out to at night. I had pictures of them in that in the middle of the night, um, and it's a little pond. So last week or two the 8th and 9th and 10th it was on fire i didn't even hunt because it was that it was warm it was like 60s and 70s but they were on the pond so that's something to think about it's a new pond so i hadn't i hadn't had previous history of that but that's definitely something I'm, i'm i'm putting in a notebook for the next few years is warm day in october they got driven out to that pond early daylight on a day that i didn't even consider hunting i was like shit we got a warm day here in october <sighs> gonna get a bunch of shit done before we buckle down for the for the final lap here but they also gave me uh, some information and in intel of where they're hanging out right now and uh um i'm just I'm, I'm just taking it easy man we're just remaining calm um it's difficult because i got daylight pictures of three legit shooters one is you know pushing V town, who I've been chasing now, this will be the fourth year of history, third year actually chasing, um, and it's it, it is difficult too because this this area they're in, I I haven't had mature bucks really in this area, and I don't know like in this time of year like it's kind of an inconsistent area, um, so I don't know if that new pond has just triggered them to be more visible. Um, I'm not sure, kind of working through that, but I think we're setting up for a good week. I, I feel good about our chances to at least get eyes on them. Um, I think tonight northeast wind's going to be completely safe for our entrance and exit. It's just a matter if they're bedded in that area, um, and if you think about it, like I, I so we're, we're the deal is north is blowing back out towards the road, right? While south winds tend to blow down through those through those big hillsides. And that's kind of where, I, when I suspect them to be bedded in these, if it makes sense to you. So a north wind blows out to the road, so that wind would be blowing not on the um, on the wayward side, so into the hillsides. And then south would be more leeward for, for the majority of the hillside system. But there is little jet backs, little pockets, where they probably can get um, an advantageous spot for a north bed. <laughs> Um, because I'm getting them in this area now and in a lot of different winds. So that's kind of what I'm thinking this week. Uh, I we get into, you know, top three days looking at the weather Monday here today. So this podcast we released this morning um, and you can use hopefully use this for your weekly plan. But we got I mean, we have a good day right now. The pressure's at thirty thirty point three. 30.3 i um, not seeing a ton of moving on cameras this morning so far, but um, we, shall, we should see. So this afternoon, I'm, I'm planning on hunting with that north-northeast wind. Uh, the only thing that's worrying me is it's going to be a dead wind. Um, so if for some reason I just I, I get worried about it, um, we might not hunt. Or I could see maybe hunting back further than I originally had anticipated. and um, might be more of a hanging hunt situation. So tomorrow, um, Tuesday, the 20th, looks to be a high of 41, low of 35. And then we have a little rain system coming in Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday morning, or sorry, into Wednesday morning. Wednesday is going to get a little warmer, 44 and 37, cloudy. Um, Pressure is kind of doing a little yo-yo, but still we're still up at 30.1 there. And there's a little kickback up here on Wednesday before the big system comes in Thursday, Thursday, it's going to be up to 67. Um, and looking like between Wednesday night and a Thursday, I mean, looking here in Wisconsin, looks like it might be an inch of rain coming. So that's a big, biggest system we've had in a while. Wind kicks back into south. Um, I'm planning on getting, you know, the work, our work done Thursday. Uh, and then Friday morning, dependent on the rain, um, it could be good. So, if I had to pick three sits for the week, I would go Friday morning if the rain stops. You got to. It is. It is going to be windy. Um, f- Friday afternoon, the wind starts calming down a little bit, but the but the pressure is really going to spike here. Thursday afternoon, we're looking at twenty nine point seven pressure, sixty seven degrees, and it's going to get all the way up by Saturday morning to thirty point four two, which is which is really high for this time of year. Um, so I would say if I had to pick top three sits, I really do like tonight. Although the wind being that calm is a little scary. Um, but I'd say number one sit is going to be <clears throat> Friday afternoon. And it depends on whether that wind really lays down in the, at night or not. Cause right now we're looking at 15, 16 mile an hour winds. And I saw this last week, even with good weather, high winds, I didn't get much movement. Um, so I think and I'm trying to, trying to kind of, you know, you hunt the fronts and you hunt with the weather, but that wind is important too. Like I just, I have, I don't have great luck with really windy conditions up on these hillsides. If you have a good low, um, valley set, um, that can be more beneficial, but you got to know what the wind's doing there. So besides that, I would say, so I would, I would say Friday morning, depending on the wind. But probably number one, it would be Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. Saturday is gonna be a great day. Um, <clears throat> wind six, six, seven, six to ten miles an hour throughout the day. You got a north wind switching to northeast in the afternoon. A little bit of a wind switch you can probably take advantage of. And then Sunday, um, there's another rain event slash snow event that's moving in. Um, And we're gonna get a little wind switch into east southeast even, so an east wind. Haven't had that in a while. So you're kind of if you have a stand set up for an east wind, um, this would be a time to get in there Sunday morning possibly. Um, So recap weekend warriors and people who are hunting hard through the week. I'd say number one Saturday's gonna be a good day. Um, So once again, we get lucky for people just hunting on the weekends because Saturday's prime day. We're in 23rd, 24th of October we're getting close something you know they're gonna be checking their checking scrapes hitting rubs um maybe maybe a doe pops early um but it definitely gonna be worth your time saturday but i'd still say unless i feel really confident about the wind and i feel confident about not busting deer i'm still not to the point yet of 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 uh going completely off the rails here um so i'm still playing it really safe I'm starting to inch in a little bit more. Mike, Mike just fell down there. All right, um, and I'll I'll give you my overall kind of theory over the next two weeks. I like to sit all my stands that I can get to once before like the twenty six and odd. On. <clears throat> once I get a virgin sit in all them, then I'll start to recycle. Um, last couple days of October, if the conditions are right, or, um, you know, getting in November. So think of just try to get those virgin sits, virgin sits, virgin sits, create your own virgin sits by mobile setups. Um, and then just play, just be safe. Be, be calm. Um, you have plenty of opportunities coming up. Um, make sure the conditions are right. If you're hunting a small property and you got, you know, one buck or one or two bucks that you're targeting, you don't want to drive them out here you're going to want to make a an aggressive move at them in the next two weeks though so just bide your time pick the right conditions for the right stand um and go in there after it and, and other i mean if you're hunting if you're just kind of like picking around at the outside and, and kind of doing safe hunts go ahead and toss a few of those in there um or getting good observation locations to to get an idea of where these bucks are at so it's going to be a good week um now we'll kick it over to the, uh, my interview with Jake and uh, buckle up because, once again, very knowledgeable. Um, he's been doing it for a long time and uh, really appreciate him bringing him on. So if you can, leave a review, um, uh, rate us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever, uh, and go ahead and share it. And we're going to keep this thing rolling. we got some more interviews coming up in the next couple weeks. Um, and then we're going to get really serious about our hunting methods and we're going to be tossing a lot of sits in here so keep coming back every monday for updates and uh good luck in the next couple weeks all right everybody we are joined here by uh jake ellinger ellinger uh jake did you realize that there's a really good texas football player has the same name as you i did not know that (laughs) yeah when you google when you google your name you have to you have to put deer behind it because there was a a good quarterback from a couple years ago that had the same exact name i've seen a guy
1: with my exact same name
0: jake ellinger from Sorry, I pronounced it wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. yeah, he played. But, he played no, for yeah, Texas. I haven't, I haven't looked into it any farther, Nat. Like, oh man, this guy in Texas with my same name. That's yeah, he's true. messing with your Google stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, Jake. I'm done with Google, anyways. I'm a Duck Duck Go guy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you joining us here. Um, you own a company called Habitat Solutions 360, correct? that's right. I guess we can start there. Um, kind of explain to our viewers and listeners everything. Um, that you do, and what got you to this point?
1: So, Habitat Solutions uh, 360 is a, uh, a habitat and long-range plan management company. Um, I get contacted by hunters and landowners that want to improve their, their hunting, improve their habitat, hold more deer, have more bedding, have better food sources. You know, you know everybody's got a little bit different goals. Some people want to hold... Uh, You know, a mature buck, some people just want to see deer, Uh, but anyways, uh, I travel about 18 to 20 different states, uh, a lot of Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, because I'm in southern Michigan, so, you know, that, that radius right there is easy for me to reach in three to four hours, okay? But I do go to Missouri and Iowa and Kansas and Arkansas and some of the southern states as well, Pennsylvania, that sort of thing. But uh, basically, I uh, meet the landowner at their property, and we kind of go over some goals and what their objectives are, and then I just walk all over the property with my camera, taking pictures of everything I see, and pointing out to the landowner, you know, what's good, what's going on good here with the deer, uh, what the deer are doing, what they are doing, you know, where they're bedding. Uh, maybe Maybe I see some bedding areas that are way too close to, you know, where we parked and where his entry is, and discuss, you know, uh, alternatives that they can take to uh, decrease that bedding or screen that bedding area. And uh, pretty much spend, you know, whatever time it takes, whether it's a 40-acre property or a 160-acre property or somewhere in between, and often it's a full day, you know, from daylight till dark. At the end of the day, I pretty much go over a list with – you know, what I what I see are the gaps that are missing on the property to help them reach their goals. And uh, I bring a lot of information. Uh, I print out about two dozen sheets of how-to and examples for everything from timber stand improvement to food plotting to screening to entry and exit and uh, wind and playing the wind and understanding, uh, you know, weather conditions and things like that, everything from post-cold front high-pressure. A lot of different things, and then I also put just tons of information on a USB drive and leave that with the client the day I'm there. And then when I get back to my office, I create a very detailed, full color uh, habitat management plan. It just goes into extreme detail on everything that I suggest doing to the property in a three to five or maybe 10 year plan, depending on how big it is and how much needs to get done. And in the long and short of it, that's my service that I provide for
0: hunters and landowners. That's awesome. I appreciate explaining that. Um, I guess we dive in. I kind of want to work, kind of want to work out some of your theories and frameworks. What is sure. the overarching? I guess if someone, if you had the one thing that kind of outlines your strategy, your your base framework for deer habitat and managing a property, what would you? say that the, that core principle is well uh, number
1: one i really try to focus on cover okay and cover comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes it can be everything from you know trees to switchgrass to old field growth to a mixture of you know warm season grasses and trees uh, there's just so many different uh, ways to create cover but i am a big believer in cover And um, what I call staged growth, so that the property produces a lot of early successional growth, which is new growth within a deer's uh, feeding zone, so they can reach it and have it available. Because uh, in my opinion, early successional growth gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, It just seems like people focus on food plots, and hey, I'm a food plot guy uh, just as well, and there's reasons for them, and and it creates great uh, movement strategies but you know deer spend a lot of time in other places on the property than just food plots and you know different seasons and things like that so cover is uh, is really important if it's not there then you know there's a there's quite a, a, a time frame to get there and some people that hire me might have a 45 acre property and it's 45 acres of woods and there's you know, one entrance trail, a little tiny clearing down by a two-acre swamp on the one corner. And for the rest of it, it's all mature hardwoods. And, and that's a property where there's a lot of work. It's it's a property that can really be uh, dramatically changed to hold deer and make your deer hunting better. But, you know, it's a lot of chainsaw work. Yeah. So, so you know, and that, you know, and it's, it's hard to say there's one thing. But it's a combination of cover, early successional growth. And then entry and exits, You know, that's everybody fights with entry and exit. How do I get in? How do I get out? And I can tell you from a guy that spent 30 years trying to fine-tune it on my own uh, 67-acre property, when you do finally get it right, it's pretty cool when it works.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that is the uh, constant struggle. Um, <laughs> I, I like how you mentioned old fields. Um, we refer to them a lot as fallow fields, and we have a few testing fallow fields that we're doing right now. What are you seeing um, in that successional stage, like after year one, year year two to four? I know th- those stages kind of vary in, in those kind of years. Uh, what are you seeing as where those fallow fields become the most productive? Yeah, I'd say, you
1: know, uh, when you've got a field that, say, was once an ag field that's been left alone, let's say it's, it's in year two going into year three. Uh, you know, you're going to get a lot of broadleaves in the beginning, and then your cool-season grasses are going to start taking over. Okay? Yeah. And you're going to get some woody growth in there, depending on the soil quality. Uh, certain parts of Wisconsin and Minnesota, it seems like
0: buckthorn moves in real quick. <laughs> yeah, we and, have it on our place. <laughs> that, is a, <clears throat> that is great cover, but,
1: you know, it's extremely invasive. and takes over, and it seems like it just spreads like fire. Yep. And then here in... Uh, Southern and mid-Michigan in the sandier, lighter soils, uh, autumn olive seems to really take over. Although uh, it's not a bad wildlife uh, plant at all if it's managed. You know, it can it can get be too thick, and uh, but you know, using herbicides, using grass-selective herbicides at a certain time of the year, and using a broadleaf leaf-selective herbicide in different locations and at different times of the year can be great methods in managing your old growth habitat and having it, again, have, have diversity and change. Have some woody growth, have some broadleaf growth like pigweed and goldenrod, and then have some other areas where maybe you've got some, some native warm season grasses like switchgrass and big bluestem that start showing up back into the fields. And just, you know, managing those edges, creating that change. Because deer are all about change in habitat, you know. If, you, if you're if you going from an open woods to the edge of a swamp, where all of a sudden the stem density goes from one tree every 10 yards to 30 trees in 10 yards that are only now the size of your thumb, that's where a lot of those bucks spend time traveling. And does as well. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, if you can look at the grand scheme of things, And come up with a, you know, a way to take 5, 10, 15 acres of old growth habitat and create, you know, segment it to where it becomes very attractive and appears to be maybe 40 acres in a deer's world because of all the edge and all the diversity, then you're really
0: starting to go somewhere. Yeah, I think we, I let 10 acres go on a 60 acre parcel and it got to, I mean, this year is a 10 foot 12 foot tall ragweed um oh, wow. i wouldn't yeah. say that they're i wouldn't say that i don't think like i don't think that they're bedding or really using it as much as cover because i don't i feel like it almost gets a little bit bare like the ragweed gets bare this time of year you know mm-hmm. like it you, there isn't yep. much on the ground if you actually right. i mean you can look through that stuff and see the see the um floor um but right. We, we, right. so you kind of expect that to turn into more of that three to five foot height and cover over the next couple of years like once ragweed it, starts getting it will and if, and yeah. if it's you know if, say next year because it it's gone to seed and it's
1: sitting there in that open ground and the sun comes in there in the spring you're gonna get a, a flush of new ragweed it may make sense to go in there when it's all about 10 inches tall and do some spot spraying with a 2,4 d or something like that a broadleaf control to kill that off and see if something else will come up. Maybe you'll get some goldenrod, or or something else will, will come in there. That's a broadleaf. There's mullein There's all kinds of different broad leaves. Depend again, depending on your soil.
0: And yeah. When I look at seed bank is because you know, well, everybody's well. got a seed bank. And, yeah. Yeah. Just
1: try and try and manage it, manage it a little bit uh, for diversity. You know, so it's not all one monoculture.
0: Because it sounds like right now it's. Ten acres of ten-foot-tall ragweed. <laughs> yeah, it actually a lot of it. Uh, we broadcasted clover, and the majority of that, and so it's well, actually there's clover in a lot of it too. We're um, testing testing the theory come, of what clover leaving a clover field fallow does too. Yeah, well, as long as you got that
1: clover down in there, so you're you know it's uh, it's producing some nitrogen, so you'll probably get a lot of different. Uh,
0: species that will come up once that ragweed kind of runs through its cycle um, right yeah i mean you look at the you look at the ditches around here and it's all goldenrod and and milkweed yeah yeah so like you can kind of look at those as as your future huh yeah I, I have great
1: you know i really like goldenrod and i you know i i have uh, about 12 acres of warm season grasses that i specifically planted here on the property and i have uh Go to certain areas where it's a little too thick and used a couple of techniques to open it up to get a little more goldenrod growing in there and boy did a deer i mean i get so much deer bedding
0: in my mix of warm season grasses and goldenrod yeah, goldenrod really show like you can see how beneficial it is right now because everything else is dying around it and it's still that thick stand like it's yeah. it looks like yeah. a, the perfect thing for a deer to back up against you know, it is a great structure, and a lot of times when you have
1: a mix of goldenrod and say switchgrass or goldenrod and big blue stem or, um, you know, right where it changes from the warm season grass to the goldenrod, the deer will lay down because the goldenrod will eventually, uh,
0: you know, it doesn't stand up to the snow and ice like your uh, switchgrass right. and things like that. So but that I mean, is that I, is the I, issue I, with it. I I have found
1: uh, some of the best antlers on the farm. In deer beds, right where the goldenrod and switchgrass came together.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So if we go into your property, the I mean the the property you you know the best, what kind of what I guess explain kind of what that was when you acquired it, and then kind of the okay, first sure. steps you've taken, and yeah, that's a good question. You know, when I bought this, it
1: was a 67 acre farm with about 29 acres of tillable. And it just, you know, it had a, wood, you know, it's got a, a mature woods on it, although I bought it several years ago, so it wasn't as mature as it is now. I bought it back in 1981. So the, uh, I I grew up right around the corner from this farm, and the uh, gentleman that owned this farm used to let me squirrel hunt, and I killed my first deer on this farm when I was 14 years old <laughs> with a flintlock 50 caliber. <laughs> hmm. You know, so it's the kind of thing I was doing back in those days. But it has about 22 acres of flooded timber in really irregular shapes, and a couple of places where the where two peninsulas come together, and those become swamp crossings. You know, whenever the, the narrow spot of the water is, that's where the deer cross, and so those are great locations to uh, put a stand on during the you know during the rut when the bucks are cruising. And, of course, the deer love to use the edges of the water, and a lot of my, my tree stands are on the edges of the water. But that 29 acres of tillable, which, you know, it's a long, it's a rectangle. I believe it's about, uh, let me think here, around, uh, I think it's a, 1,100 feet wide along the road frontage, and then it's about 2,600 feet deep going mm-hmm. north to south. So the tillable was all on the south side and uh, it had kind of an irregular shape it wasn't a straight line going across But after we bought it i quickly took about i think seven or eight acres in kind of a a little bay that went into the woods and took that out of production because i had a farmer farming it when i first bought it and started planting conifer trees and all kinds of different deciduous trees and different oak species and you name it i was just just playing, and again, this goes back into the early 80s when you couldn't pick up a magazine and even read about habitat. Okay, it was just yeah, it just wasn't. It was just I had been lucky enough to meet a couple of deer biologists young in my life, and you know they they were uh, they hadn't even really you know gotten into habitat management. They were studying deer, but they knew enough about habitat. They uh, threw a few. Uh, cookie crumbs towards me, some ideas, and I kind of ran with them and then just learned a lot on my own. But, I mean, it's a typical southern Michigan. It's, it's uh, what you call gently rolling hills. We've got like 35 to 40-foot hills. Nothing really steep, you know, not like certain other parts of the country. But, you know, really good wetland and uh, definitely not the most fertile soil, but not bad soil. It's primarily clay and loam. Uh, but it's sure better than that yellow beach sand that I see people trying to plant food plots in.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so uh, uh, it's got that going for it. And a, and a good majority of white and red oak and hickory throughout the, the hardwoods. That's probably the predominant species. Okay. So, you know, that's what I started with. And uh, like I said, I, I took about seven or eight acres in the early years and started planting conifers and, Norway spruce and blue spruce and Douglas fir and a
0: variety of different conifers because there was not any conifers at all on the property. Is there a specific species of conifer that you'd recommend now?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I really like Norway spruce because they will grow in a lot of different temperature gradients and they'll deal with just about every kind of soil condition. Other than heavy wet soil that you know that is seasonably wet, or like you know, or beach sand, you know, yellow beach sand, there's just no way to hold moisture for them. But if you've got halfway decent soil that holds some moisture and has some organic matter in it, uh, Norway spruce will do very well. And that's what I used for screening in the old days. I was trying to screen off from the road, and then I had a lane where I where I pulled into this property before we built a garage and house here. So. I was trying to screen off that that lane, you know, so that, you know,
0: I wasn't walking across 29 acres of open property trying to go deer hunting and right. had
1: the deer laughing at me 400 yards away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: Absolutely. Know, they, so you, you yeah. use, uh, that spruce was a good tree for a, a screen like so, that? So the good thing about Norway spruce is they hold their lower limbs as mm, they get yep, older. Yep.
1: And, you know, we're like white pine and red pine as they start getting into that 10 12 inch caliper 30 feet tall they kind of lose that first eight feet of their limbs so if so if you're really looking for a screen and you've got one or two rows you, you'll actually have a screen all the way to the ground so that was the benefit it just takes you know much longer time to see the fruits of your labor compared to you know switchgrass or miscanthus grass or you know the hybrid sorghums and things like that, that you can plant nowadays that you can get you know a you can get a great screen and you know the first year with your sorghums or good screens with your switchgrass and miscanthus grass in about two or three years so, right so uh so that's my idea you know i just embarked on a, i mean i was a a individual that was number one very passionate in deer hunting and wanted to uh, take this property and turn it into really good deer hunting and you know i was you know i married and had two boys and had a uh, job in the automotive world where I was driving, you know, two hours each way to work. So my time was limited, but anytime I had a, a spare four hours, I was over here working and just, you know, trial and error. But uh, it wasn't until I got into timber stand improvement that the light really went on.
0: Okay. Yeah. That was my next question. What was the, what was the aha? Or when did you, when did you finally think that you were doing something right? Well, you know,
1: I'd owned the property for about, uh, seven to ten years, and I I would, as a landowner, at least in this part of the state, you would be contacted by timber companies saying, hey, we're, you know, we're ABC timber company, and, you know, we'd love an opportunity to quote, you know, uh, a timber harvest on your property, and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it, and, you know, some some people from my family would say, oh, you don't want to do that, and other people would say it was a good idea, and ran into a good friend of mine, told me, you know, it was one of the best things he did, so I did invite a Timber company to uh, come in. They took a look. They proposed a timber harvest, and and they did a selective cut. You know, and in the beginning, I was like, oh man, you know what? This is going to be so awesome because I was noticing areas in that first ten years that used to be thick that were no longer thick. Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh man, I'm going to have these trees cut out of here, and the sunlight's going to come in. And it was uh, it was the aha moment was even though they cut 250 trees and hauled them out of there. I didn't get enough growth to come up to, I mean,
0: it just, it did not make cover. Okay? So do you think those trees that were left just exploded? It those holes yeah. so quick. It just choked it right out. Yeah. And uh, there was a couple of good friends of mine that I was working
1: with that had been doing all kinds of work in the South, and uh, they knew a little bit about hinge cutting. And uh, way back in, man, I'm going to say about 1978, to 85, there was a couple of guys I was following that used this term, hinge cutting, and they had some sketches in, like, Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, and many, many years ago, and so I started playing with it, you know, and uh, I, I met another individual that was about 10 years older than I was at the time, and he had really gotten into it, and he was telling me, that's the best thing I ever did, was decide, um, uh, don't worry about the timber value, and I'm here to grow deer, and so I really started getting, uh, you know, kind of, uh, some of my family thought I was nuts, but I got into cutting trees, okay, Yeah. and hinge cutting, and and a lot of it was deliberate and very precise, but the amount of early successional growth and cover that I was creating, and just night and day difference in the deer that I was seeing, you know, from... It was taking the, you know, I'm going to go hunting, and, and if I see a deer, to well, I'm going to go to this stand down on the water, and I know I'm going to see deer, you know. And, uh, I you know, to this day, I still do an awful lot of hinge cutting on the property. My goal is to have lots of early successional growth. And it all ties into my techniques of travel corridors and kind of a maze effect within the hinge cutting, you know, just – you can't just have this giant mess with trees laying all over the place. It has to be well thought out. And, you know, you know I'm going to want, you know, kind of a winding north-south path. And I'm going to want a, a winding east-west path. And then I'm going to have spurs of openings and areas so that, you know, isolated doe family groups can bed over here. And one or two, you know, single bucks can bed over on the north side and on the east side and depending on the wind. So, I uh, have developed a system which is called segregating the sexes in the
0: development of the hinge cutting and bed building, and it works really, really well. So, what are you in, in, the, in an easy scope for people? Um, I guess explain what you have seen um, with the differences in bedding. So, bucks, like you're talking about, certain areas are buck bedding, certain areas are dull bedding. Right. What have you seen to distinguish that, and what have you done to kind of enhance um, both so, areas? So, number one,
1: I'll tell you that, you know, number one, I focus on everything I do on my property and client properties for basically the three months of the hunting season, which is October, November, December. You do a lot of different things during 12 months. So, in the summer, bucks are together in bachelor groups, but right now those bachelor groups are breaking up. So... What I do know is that doe family groups, and that could be three or four adult does that are all related to one another, basically daughters and granddaughters of a mature, you know, of a matriarch doe that's five or six years old, and their fawns. So this could be a group of seven antlerless deer, or a group of nine or eleven antlerless deer, all living together at this time of the year. And they're different, you know. There's fawns, and there's two-year-old doe fawns, and four-year-old does, and their doe fawns. And, of course, they're going to have their button bucks with them at this time of the year, too. But they live together as a family group. So what I have found is does like a more open area with they like, thick understory to surround them, what I call side cover. But if they're going to lay down in an area, say, that's 20 by 30, they like to be able to make eye contact with one another because, you know, there's always going to be two of those does that are going to lay, you know, they're going to lay down correctly with the, you know, with the uh, wind to their back, so they can see what they can't smell and smell what they can't see, and then all the other younger does and those doe fawns and button bucks are going to basically kind of surround them so they can make eye contact with those leaders. And so when those leader does are under alert situations, they can tell. Okay, they pay attention to to Grandma and what she's doing. And so I've just found that they like. Like more open areas to bed. In. I mean, and, I, and it's still plenty of cover. But as a group, they want to be—you know—it has to be enough room for that group to lay down. Yep. Where when you take a single three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half-year-old buck that's all by himself at this time of the year, he wants a spot that's literally you know four feet by six feet with cover all the way around it with maybe, you know, three three ways in and out, so he's got an escape route, so coyotes and other deer can't pin him in. But he likes to have cover all the way around him and a little overhead cover, and he doesn't want to make any eye contact with another antlered buck at this time of the year. So what I try to do is develop isolated, individual buck bedding 50 to 75 yards away from where these doe group bedding areas are, and they're all interconnected with with trails and travel corridors and that type of thing and it can be you know it can be an area that i just cut or it can be a spot that was hinge cut seven years ago and i've gone back in there and i've recut again where this you know early succession has now turned into trees that are eight feet tall and and inch and a half in diameter and so you know there's a lot uh, you know it's so much easier to walk into an area there and take a look at it but my goal is to spread deer out and provide a lot of early successional growth, which would be woody browse for the deer to eat, and give them the the cover protection they need, but enough space where they don't feel like they're on top of one
0: another. Yeah. And so have I, you so I take we, every
1: square inch of this property, and if it's not food, it's cover. Yeah. And
0: if it's not food or cover, it's a transition zone. Okay. <laughs> so. so when we talk about bedding, um, have you seen? <clears throat> that's do you try to place that 75 to 100 for the bucks away from the dough further into like cover because you hear people talk about like depth of cover or um, further away from the food top food source yeah, what are you seeing yeah.
1: what I you know um, it, when you use the depth of cover there's certain locations on this farm where that works but probably the one thing I pay the most attention to is, What are the natural air thermals? What are the natural air currents? How do they move throughout that particular area? And I'm trying to locate the bucks where they can use the wind to their advantage to be downwind of those does when the does are bedded under a given wind direction. And then also give them an alternative bedding area that they can pick up when the wind is now 180 degrees from where it was yesterday the does are still using the center core, but the buck can now locate and get downwind of those does, okay? And so, does that make sense? Yep. That's, that's literally what I'm trying to do. So, I'm not trying to make one bet for a buck. I'm trying to give him, basically, I'm trying to build a Hotel Hilton with 300 rooms for 50 guests, and then I let them decide. Right. Because depending on the weather conditions, the, the velocity of the wind, pressure, low pressure, Um, You know, rain, snow, sleet. uh, depending on all those different
0: conditions, they're going to pick these bedding areas. Do you, so have you you seen, you've had pretty good success with saying, hey, this is a a buck, a mature buck would bed here with these specific conditions because he's getting the wind over his back, he's got cover to his back on side, and then he's catching those thermals coming up in front of him or seeing out in front of him. Yep. How, what What do you think is more important, the fact that he's getting the wind coming over his back or the, the thermals? You know, there's some times they
1: like to look into the wind, especially, like, I know in, uh, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota there's a lot of bluff and hill country, and, you know, my farm is not that. And, I, and it seems the flatter the country, the less that's important. But it seems like when there's steep ridges and deep ravines, there are deer that like to bed right on that, what we call the military crest, and look down over that edge, because they're also, they want to be able to see, so they like
0: thick cover behind them. Yeah, that's a, that's what we're, mountain, see, yeah, we're, we're in more hill country here, That's what and that's yeah, definitely what we see. I kind of want to know, what, is, well, yeah, what are you seeing in, in the different kind so, of terrain that you're in? So,
1: where I'm at, where, I mean, heck, heck, there's certain parts of this woods that for 150 yards you don't see, but 10 feet of terrain change, and, you know, then... You go 100 yards, and there's 35 to 40 feet. But again, it's, it's gently rolling, you know. Right. But, but what I'm noticing is they like to position themselves probably where the wind uh, tells them everything that's going on. That's probably the number one. They live by their noses here. And, uh, you know, it's a high, high hunting pressure, a uh, high number of deer hunters per square mile, uh, you know, uh, longest gun season on bucks, I believe, in the nation with thirty five days of gun season on bucks.
0: What? <laughs> My God. Oh yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, I yeah, we, yeah. we deal with a lot here in Wisconsin too, but Yep. Yeah, you know, and then we have the youth hunt and other things. Yeah. So these deer, you know, are constantly
1: being exposed to pressure one level or another. Okay. So uh so, you know, by the time you do get a, a four and a half year old or older buck here in southern Michigan, you know, he's he's seen it all, uh, you know, done it all. And so he's really living by his nose. Okay, he's spent a lot of time living by his nose, and uh, you know, I've, and I'm a real observer. That you know, I haven't gone into the woods in probably 30 years without a camera with me. Okay, and so I just constantly take pictures, and then moved into the video cameras as soon as those became small enough to where they didn't weigh 40 pounds and were the size of a bread box, you know, like they used to be. And uh, you know, I've just I have just taken content. I spend a lot of time watching and learning, and a lot less time uh, trying to kill.
0: Even though I do kill a few good deer here and there, but uh, so what that, are you? That are you? Your oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I think betting is so important because I think it's the I think it's the thing that people have the hardest time understanding. I know for me, it took me forever to kind of get a grasp on on why, I guess, what was the relation between weather conditions and betting. Um, <clears throat> I'll go into you, you had a successful harvest, uh, the opener, correct? I mean, well, it was that... the second day. Our our archery opener
1: is October first here. Okay. Yep. And uh, the evening, or afternoon of October second, yeah, I ended up uh, taking
0: just a super deer here on my farm, and the hunt was just incredible. So going into As... that, going, I guess, if you want to, if we want to do, a, set the stage a little bit for that hunt, um, you have history with that deer.
1: I do. Yep. I have this deer was, uh, I believe. Last year I was pretty convinced he was four and a half, but now that I got him and I've, I've had a chance to look at his lower jaw, um, I believe last year he was just a really super good three and a half year old. Last year um, he was pretty cagey as a th- he acted like a four year old, and I'm going to send the I'm going to send the incisors in for the cementenium aging, and then I'll find out for sure. But I did have uh, history with this deer, and this year. As soon as they cast their antlers, that buck was on this property every day.
0: Oh, really? He was
1: here all of March, all of April. I was—he was blowing up my cameras. He had about a 35-acre area that he was spending all of his time, and he just kept growing and growing. And I would show pictures uh, to my wife Anaya, who's who loves to watch them. She's not a hunter; she helped me retrieve the deer and, and getting hung up and everything. But you know, I would as you know as we go into. You know, June and then July, I kept saying, look how wide this deer is. And then, you know, you're getting into mid July. look at the times on this thing. <laughs> I'd, show, I'd show her pictures. She goes, my gosh, that's on our place. I said, yeah, isn't that amazing? And uh, yeah, he was just an incredible, incredible deer. So uh, my last hard antler pictures of that buck were, was about two weeks ago. And I knew he had made a shift. I, it's really cool. I have so much good doe bedding on this property. That I have taken about seven and a half acres on the on the opposite side of this giant water that I have. There's a large peninsula that goes out into that water, and I've taken that seven and a half acres and made it just for buck bedding. It's seven and a half acres of nothing but narrow corridors and small locations for bedding. So typically in the summer, all the nice bucks on the farm end up bedding in there, and I can set up cameras on the outside and just get pictures of them all summer long and i got a few licking branches in there and i'm a i'm a vine guy I, I hang uh you know grapevine and you know so they're gonna hit the grapevines and i get where they're where they're coming out and, and when they're walking down this corridor and i just get some great photos and uh, so i i nicknamed him the wide 10 because he was the widest buck i've had on camera i think
0: ever yeah he is he's a yeah, wide he's, framed deer what did you yeah, end up going really 20 22 Yep, 21 and an 8
1: yeah. inside. So that's, you know, for around here, I've killed, you know, a pile of deer, and I'd say the closest one I have is about 17 and a half or 18. So, you know,
0: he exceeded it by three inches, so that's a big deal. So, I, oh, that's a gene that you haven't really seen around there then? No,
1: no, we, we normally just don't get them very wide
0: here. Huh. And I have a lot of nice, mature deer that are literally just ears wide. I, I've killed, a, you know, a number of deer like that. So but, you, you, uh, you got a picture of him that last week of September. You said he, sw- he switched his core a little bit.
1: Yeah, he had shifted from that bedding area, and he had moved over here close to my house. And uh, I got one or two pictures, but I pulled all my cameras. It's just one of the disciplined things that I do is everybody's running cameras. I don't care. You know, every 40 acres, every 20 acres has got a hunter with a camera on it. Okay. Yeah. And I just, anytime I have areas I'm going to hunt, I don't have a camera. It's just something I started doing about seven, eight years ago, and it's really paid off. Now, I still have cameras in locations where I can pay attention, but I did not get another picture of that deer. So he just avoided all these other areas. But I knew, you know, instincts and then, and then living here and hunting and managing this ground, I, I had a really good idea where that buck was betting. And I knew the food source he was feeding in because right up until I pulled my camera on this two-acre secluded soybean uh, plot that I've got, he was in there, you know, four or five, six days a week. Okay.
0: Okay. And
1: uh, yeah, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the only one, but you know, he was, the, he was the nice, he was the
0: top-end buck in there. So was so, he actually uh, daylighting in there, or, or was oh, he? Oh yeah, he was okay. in there in daylight. Nice. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, and even the
1: hardhorn pictures i got were daylight okay so he was very comfortable uh he, he knew he knew his area knew it well so we get coming into october 2nd uh you know i'm watching the weather and and it was a great opener because here in michigan we had a great cold front come in on october 1st
0: yep yep
1: and i am a I uh, i am a strong proponent of hunting food sources in the afternoon on a post cold front and that will be 12 to 24 hours after a cold front with high pressure and northwest wind, and that's exactly what we had for Friday afternoon, October 2nd. It was overcast. Uh, the pressure was about 30.18 or 30.2. The winds were out of the northwest, about 8 to 10 miles an hour. And then I, you know, I and I'm a big set control guy, and and I just, you know. I started at two o'clock, took my shower, got all scent controlled. I mean, it gets dark here at about a quarter to eight. And I was, you know, really good entry. I mean, the entry is so good. And and I've got screening and switchgrass and spruce trees and miscanthus grass, and nothing can see me to get into my blind. And I, I hunted out of a Banks blind. I've got it all brushed in and hidden in this field. And I slipped into that field, and it's a, Like I say, it's two acres of soybeans, and right out in front of that banks blind is a cedar tree that I planted 20-some years ago. It's about eight inches in diameter. And all the bucks end up around that cedar tree working scrapes and rubbing
0: it. Yeah.
1: I don't care care where they come from the field, they end up next to that tree.
0: Oh, magical, magical tree there. (laughs) And
1: I went in there, uh, I mean, just to give you a couple of habitat tips, I went in there in late August with a walk-behind brush hog. And these soybeans are like 40 to 45 inches tall. And I mowed paths that deer walked down, and, and every path I made that went through that field all
0: was like a spoke to that cedar tree. And okay. I mowed all the way around that cedar tree and knocked everything down
1: so they'd have lots of lots of clearings to stand in to, to work scrapes underneath that tree. And then I overseeded it with... Uh, a 4 uh cereal rye called rootstock rye, and crimson clover and a little bit of dwarf Essex rate.
0: Mm, okay. And
1: you know, as soon as I got done overseeding it, it poured for like two hours, and it was I just knew it would be awesome. But that was the last time I'd been in that field, was right around August 29th was the last time I was there. So I stayed completely away from it, don't have any cameras, slipped in there Friday afternoon, got in the uh, stand at about a quarter after 3, and I mean, I could just feel it. I just knew great things were going to happen. And uh, you know, half an hour, twenty minutes later, you know, here's the first year and a half old buck, and then watch him. And then you know, half an hour later, he was a basket rack eight. And then another, another nice year and a half old buck. And then here's a couple mature does. Half an hour later, here's a couple more mature does. So now there's two bucks and four does. And I'm checking them out, and I've probably been there for. Uh, you know, I've probably been there a good solid two hours. We're probably now about 5 or 5.30, and I look off into the northeast direction where most of these deer enter the field when the wind is out of the northwest, and I see this giant rack walking in, and it's this buck I, I nicknamed the wide tent. And he's coming in the field, and he's, you know, like 70 yards away. And he's feeding, and he's, you know, and I've got uh, – hybrid sorghum to kind of pinch them into an area so they go around and and can see where the cedar tree is i've just learned where deer like to have cover and where they don't in that field
0: and he's you know he's
1: out there for you know 15 minutes and he's feeding and he kind of gets just to the north of me about 50 yards away which is a shot i just won't take and i know i'm going to get a closer shot anyways and he keeps looking off you know from the direction he came and you know, and there's a, uh, another nice 10 point, probably a low 40s 10, but a beautiful 10 comes out, and he's feeding, and he's doing the same thing. And over 10 minutes or so, and I'm just taking all kinds of footage, uh, these two end up meeting up right there in one of my mode paths. It's just as green as can be. I mean, here's the, the beans are as brown as you can imagine, and then here's these bright green paths three feet
0: wide. Yeah, it's okay. a beautiful time to be out there.
1: So, it is, and, and both of these bucks sparred on and off for 45
0: minutes. So oh, wow. I got this incredible video of these two bucks pushing and shoving, and
1: you know, you know a 21 inch wide uh, buck, you know, along with say like a uh, 16, 17 inch wide buck sparring, and you know, it looked pretty good, okay? It was pretty awesome. And uh, you know, it took them a long time, but ultimately, uh, he and that, you know, the, the big, big 10 and the smaller 10 made, gosh, eight, nine scrapes. Every scrape the wide 10 would make, then the, he'd walk away from it, then the narrow 10 would walk in, and he'd work that same scrape and do the rub urination and the whole nine yards. And, and a couple other bucks came in, another nice probably 120, 125-inch, eight-point nice, eight-point came in, and it was starting to get dark. And eventually all these bucks end up right at that cedar tree, all working the scrapes and, of course, eating that rye and crimson clover because it's this... You know, green food source they love, and it was almost dark. And then I see the white ten come in, and he, he walks right up at 22 yards, gives me, gives me the uh, you know the perfect broadside shot at 22 yards, and I shoot. You know, he mule kicks, and he heads off north. And of course, his cedar tree is so big and tall that I can't see the deer. You know, I'm not sure if he fell, but I I knew I made a good shot on him, and. Uh, I've had to wait quite a while for the deer to clear the fields but finally came out and came back home changed my clothes got i've got a lab pepper she's 10 years old but she's a uh, she's real good
0: at trailing oh that's I said, well, awesome I'm gonna grab
1: the leash and grab pepper and i'm gonna go take her right to where he was standing because it's dark and and who knows you know did he did he go 50 yards did he go 150 yards yeah, a dog can really help you especially right it's dark. yeah so anyways, I took her right out there, and as soon as she got out his trail, she just pulled me through the beans, and I got a flashlight, and I kind of looked ahead, thinking, well, when we get to the edge of the field here, I'll be able to see see blood real good, and crap there, he's laying,
0: <laughs> he didn't make it 45 yards. Oh, wow. That's exciting, and congrats on that. That has to be a so rewarding... The on that deer, he was uh, he was 274 pounds live weight. I,
1: I, I always gut the deer here at my garage. I've got a system. I kind of check out their lungs and look at their intestines, and I kind of... I learned a few things from some biologists just to check a couple of things out. But he was, yeah, 274 live weight and 221 field dressed.
0: That is a tank. And he gross scored right at like 156 and some change. Wow. So, and you're thinking 20. you're thinking he's four or five? I'm thinking he's four and
1: a half. He's just an exceptional four and a half year old. I mean, yeah. What a, imagine that deer at six. He probably hmm. would be 190, 200. You know who knows? I mean, you never, you never know. It's, you know, you always speculate, but deer do the darn things. But that was the best deer I've taken so far in my life, and uh, and every de- deer I have ever killed has been here on this farm. So uh, I've never killed a deer anywhere else in here, so it's pretty cool.
0: Wow! Congrats. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, so that, when you when you when you went in that day, um, with that specific wind, northwest wind, you must have had a pretty good idea where these bucks were bedded and...
1: and actually i just put a uh, youtube video up that covers the hunt and shows and i had a very good suspicion that at this time of the year there's a big hinge cutting area i nicknamed it the brutus hinge cut because in 2017 i killed another giant he was an eight point but i killed a giant buck that weighed just about the same and it was a rut hunt and he came right along the edge of that hinge cut looking for does and again you know went stopped him at 15, 18 yards, and double lunged him, and he didn't go 40 yards, and, and he was just a giant of a deer. And I had all kinds of history with him. But for uh, when you look at the location of that uh, hinge cutting, it's probably a solid one acre of trees down with a lot of a lot of early successional growth, openings, networks, all kinds of little spots that deer, you know, individual bucks can go into. um, That was my suspicion. Of course, I won't go in there and look, but. I've just learned over the years that that is where those bucks like to bed at this time of the year. And then with a northwest wind, they're northeast of this food plot, so they're basically cross-winding that northwest wind as they're heading to that food plot, and they tend to prefer that an awful lot. And it was pretty cool to watch all these mature deer. Now, these young bucks... Will will walk with the wind to their back, so to speak. But those uh, three mature bucks that did come into that field, none of them approached that cedar tree until they got south of it, and then could scent check and walk up to that cedar tree. You know, use, utilizing the wind to their advantage.
0: So you must you must walk in from the south. I do. I come in. So from you're the able south. you're able to access what that wind in your face, and then that wind you're blowing that out into switchgrass or. It's just blowing back behind me into an, uh, basically an old
1: growth field area, where I've got a mixture of different conifers from 20 years old to two years old, and some apple trees and some cherry trees in there, and, and a bunch of goldenrod. And I mean, if you saw my entry, I mean my paths are just honed right up and they're quiet. And I mean, and it takes me 45 minutes to go 200 yards. I, I mean, I'm walking on eggshells going in. Yeah. I'm taking one or two steps and stopping it and one or two steps and stop. And, and I, re, I, you know, I'm really careful because you never, it's not so much those big bucks, but there could be a doe family group that's bedded up close to the food. You never quite know at this time of the year with it being the first really hard cold snap, you know, two days before that, it was, you know, 78 degrees. And, and that day when I was walking in, it was 48. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, major change. And of course they're, you know, they're coming to that food to get those carbohydrates from those soybeans. And, uh, yeah, it was just a, just an awesome hunt, and I'm blessed to, to you know, um, have the opportunity as I do. But
0: I will say, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. So something I always battle with this scenario is when you access and then have your wind blow into the area you access. But it is, like, so when we talk about, like, keeping, you know, old fallow fields, conifers, all that stuff. We're, we're also talking about deer habitat. So do you yeah. just use previous years' knowledge of how deer move through that property to know, like, yes, this is deer habitat, but it's not habitat that I'm expecting them to use during daylight hours? Right, and, you know, um, I get very
1: specific with my clients in trying to discuss and get them to, to wrap their head around. Here's an area you can hunt during early season Here's this incredible bedding area, and I want you to hunt that during the rut, but here's the time period that you never, ever walk in there. Because if you walk in it, you know, at like the, you know, the first four weeks of October, you're going to jump deer because they're in the bedding area. You can't beat yeah. them out of
0: them, yeah. you know.
1: And, you know, so there's, you know, pre-rut, post-rut, and then the rut. And uh, so when I'm around food sources, I always try to have the wind in my face. You know, and I've got another almost identical food source set up, that is northeast of me. So had that wind, say, been out of the northeast, I wouldn't have gone to the plot I went to. I'd have gone to one northeast, completely hidden, surrounded. I mean, I get pictures there all the time of really good deer. And uh, I know from running my trail cameras, I got another buck that's uh, pretty nice, and, and uh, he had, he was in that other plot on, uh, on the evening of the 2nd. So... Uh, I would have had a couple of choices, I guess, but, uh, so I do, I do, you know, to answer your question,
0: I, you know, number one, uh, history with
1: the property and understanding how the deer use your property. Oh. And then you can have, uh, you know, old growth field is good, but, but right now that's not the preferred bedding area.
0: Right. That's
1: really preferred bedding in December and January. But it, right now, the hinge-cut areas, and, you know, there's acorns in the woods, and so there's other food sources that attract them as well. And there's still uh, lots of, green, you know, young, tender green stuff on the uh, woody browse, which, you know, they just spend so much time eating, you know. If you uh, do much research in deer biology, you'll
0: find that about 70% of a deer's diet is woody brows. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it just it's yeah. overlooked. Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, I mean... As you know, when it comes to deer, there's nothing absolute, okay? And you know, to to, I can't say, oh, well, I can walk in here tomorrow and and there's not going to be a deer there. Well, there could be a deer there. I mean, that's just part of the deal. And I'm not going to say I haven't jumped a few deer, and then still had a successful hunt because you know the level of my scent control and how I take care of the bottoms of my boots and everything that I go through, so that when they do walk over my path, they don't freak out, they don't know I was there. So. I try really hard to be the invisible hunter. I mean, that is my goal. I'm I'm very light pressure. I do not put pressure on this property. I'm extremely careful about going into areas. And, uh, you know, I I, I treat it with, uh, you know, like it's my trophy management property, okay? (laughs) So it's the only slice of heaven I have to hunt on, so I have to treat it well. Because if I was to abuse it and uh, let them find out that I'm here hunting them, then it's all over. Okay, they're onto my game, and uh, they're gonna start avoiding me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it. You know, it's something I always battle with. Is is the, when you decide those locations, the exit or the entrance and exit. Uh, I think there's always a calculated area of vulnerability that you just have to accept. And I've I've gotten into those points too, where it's like, if you don't accept that that there's some vulnerability in every spot, then you just sit there and spin your wheels and. Don't you know end up that, having a spot you know, I'm glad you brought that up Tyler That is really good because that is true You
1: know uh, every once in a while we have to take a risk And it's not always perfect But you know uh, you, you just gotta Like you said you just have to accept it And you're gonna get through there And sometimes you go through and you never you never Run into deer and other times
0: you do And that's just part of yeah. uh, Hunting whitetails with the changes In topography that we've got throughout this Midwest here Yeah and I think it's I think it's something, you know, we're getting to that point now, but it's, you know, you you get to, when you start hunting, you're not being cautious enough. And then you kind of get that aha thing. Like, Hey, if I'm more cautious, I see more deer. And you can almost cripple your, yourself in that way too, where it's like, I'm not going to put, you know, do anything that could scare any possible deer. Um, but yeah, I think you, you put a good way of explaining it. You kind of, kind of take your previous year's experience. You know, really think about it and just, you know, nail down that lowest vulnerability area. Like uh,
1: this property, because of the 29 acres, which is on the south, and the remaining property is swamp and uh, mature woods. uh, That's had the heck cut out of it with a chainsaw. But uh, because of that, you know, most of my food is on the (laughs) southern half of the farm. So I cannot
0: hunt mornings in October. I, I've just learned, you know, you, you want to screw up your hunting season, just start hunting mornings in October. Because you access from the south from those old fields. Yeah. deer every one of these food plots, and all I'm doing is them. Yeah, you have a weirdly similar property to the one that we just bought, 60 acres north to south running, flip it opposite where all the 30-acre the egg field runs to the north, and then all the cover is kind of to the south. So oh, okay, yeah, so you got just the opposite of what I am. But, but it's the same issue yeah. cuz you're dealing with, you know, you have your destination food sources up towards, you know. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, where well, you can do them.
1: You know, it's hard to create a destination food source in a mature woods. It <laughs> yeah. It
0: can be done, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, no, I think I think working through those battles every property, and you you've seen it, you've been on millions of prop or hundreds of properties. Every property kind of has this nuance where you just have to develop the plan around it. Yep.
1: And, you know, um, one of the best things I run into is, you know, and and you're right, I've been on something over a 1,000 properties because I celebrated 20 years as Habitat Solutions 360 this year.
0: Congrats. That's impressive.
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, I I was in the automotive world for years, and that's where I made, you know, some serious money, and, and it was a great business to be in. But I couldn't wait to get out of it, and, you know, I just literally walked out of it and said, I'm going to start this business, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. But uh, the one thing that I find is I find uh, two types of clients, uh, clients that have a want and then clients that realize there's a lot of work and risk that needs to be taken, okay? And the successful ones are the ones that work and take risk. And I just, just got an email this morning. I was at the guy's property two years ago, and he's done a tremendous amount of work. And he just he just killed best buck of his life. Now it's an Ohio property. So, you know, they've got, you know, they have a five-day gun season, okay? It's so a lot of difference, okay? <laughs> you know? And, and a one-buck tag. But still, you know, it's a great, great state. And uh, I drew up a plan, and then... He, didn't want to, uh, he wasn't comfortable cutting the trees, so I recommended a gentleman I know here in Michigan that hinge cuts trees, and that gentleman went down, I believe, two different times and, and cut trees for him. And he says, I killed this buck last night as it came out of that first bedding area you designed in the plan. <laughs> and I'm saying it's probably a 160s, you know, just an awesome, awesome buck. So, so happy for him. But, you know, he's a guy that gets access understands the bedding areas isn't wandering around in that bedding area putting cameras in there so he can show his buddies on facebook what's going on he's thinking about killing a deer you know right <laughs> and i don't mean anything negative about that you know I, i'm not putting down facebook because so i think it's you know there's some great social media out there but uh you know, you can you can harm your hunting an awful lot in that late August, September, and early October by having cameras where you
0: really shouldn't be leaving your human scent at that time of the year. Right. Well, Jake, we have I I probably could sit on here for a couple hours with you, but I want to get to um, when people are listening to this. It'll be the week of the nineteenth, so we'll ha- they'll have two weeks left of October. So if we do a oh, quick little yeah. quick little round with you first question i have is if somebody what's one thing someone can do this year still on their property to maximize their success do now now the hunting season is is running and we're looking at yep someone someone calls you up like hey I i got a nice buck here i just want to kill i know you can't we can't really do much change in the land management stuff until next spring but what what's something that i should just focus on right now
1: i would focus on uh boy that's that's a tough one i there's there's two things if you've got a travel corridor that you can slip into when when it's raining and create a licking branch and have a stand set up there and then stay the heck out of it and wait for uh, the conditions that i mentioned before wait for post cold front high pressure uh you know and and that can be north north, northwest northeast wind uh, you know those kinds of conditions and then again, of course identifying the food source You know trying to catch that deer as he's either heading to the food source or coming back from it You know that would probably there's nothing like having a socialization spot at, You know these next two
0: weeks can be an incredible time to see good buck movement Yeah, and then what you know, and then that, if we if we gave our listeners your strat what would be your strategy the last two weeks of October or so before the craze of the rut takes place you know, in November, I, what are we what I are we still doing? would avoid, for this farm, I would still
1: avoid morning hunts uh, because I really don't have an area I can get into that I'm not, you know, going to blow deer out of food. But I would focus on afternoons and even midday. And I'm a guy that watches moon position a lot and not moon phase, but where it's at in the sky. So I've killed uh, 20-some deer based on moon position in my life. And all my five-year-olds and uh, four-year-olds have all been killed under these conditions. And that buck I killed uh, on the second we had a rising moon, okay, just before it got dark. So uh, there's a little bit of influence that makes deer move uh, when when you have moon miners, which is rising and, and setting, and then... A moon major, which is overhead and underfoot, and that's gravitational pull. But that would be for a whole other podcast because it's a very in-depth, complicated subject. And I could
0: get people in trouble by just trying to make an assumption. There's a lot yeah. of things you have to look for. Well, I think if we look at the October kind of calendar, we're looking at the yeah. 16th is going to be darker the moon. And then the 30, 31st, 31st into November looks like it's going to be the next full. Yeah, and, maybe and the I killed the, first, that or... buck on the second, which was full moon. So, yep. Know, yep. it's, uh, yeah. But uh,
1: I would say, you know, these next two weeks, uh, scrape lines, rub lines, uh, transition areas, and, of course, if you've got, you know, if you've got a good food source you can get to in the afternoon, hey, more power to you. I'd focus on that, too. I mean, you know, especially when this cold weather comes in, these deer really, you know, put on the calories to stay warm. Absolutely. That's my strategy. That's what works for me. But, you know, we, we get through the month of October, and then that's when, you know, I mean, that's when, you know, when we get into November, then it's the going into the timber and, and those those frosty mornings in November that can just be a blast. You
0: know? Oh, yeah. It's, you probably don't get to hunt that very often. So you have a whole month on a property even managed for 40 years. Uh,
1: well, you know, I, I don't always kill a deer in early season. Um, I've killed, like, I killed Brutus on November 8th, and that was, you know, a... Early morning rut hunt, very cold. And then I killed
0: a real cool five and a half year old buck a few years ago. I nicknamed Righty. You say eight, you screen. say eight and a half?
1: No, he was he was five and a
0: half. Okay, I thought you said eight and a half. I was like, my God, that's that's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, you know, but a five and a half is. is hey, like, you know, that's impressive too. When you uh, when you I happened to score for commemorative bucks
1: in Michigan, which is the. the you know, the organization that keeps track of game records here in Michigan. And because of our high numbers of hunters, uh, we have two buck tags, and we have such a long gun season. Uh, anytime you enter four-and-a-half to five-and-a-half-year-old deer, you're talking about an extremely rare animal, okay? There are, there are places in Michigan where there are no deer over three-and-a-half years old, and even a three-and-a-half one is extremely rare.
0: Wow. There are
1: many places. OK.
0: Wow.
1: So, you know, uh, probably a, probably a one in a thousand deer for this area is a five, five and a half year old buck. OK. And I've done a lot of work in Wisconsin and I'm always drooling in Wisconsin because I see sections in Wisconsin where there's 170 and 180 inch deer all the time. It's like we just don't have those kinds of genetics. But uh, so this buck I killed is a very top end buck. I've scored in this area for 20 years and I've maybe scored six deer over 150 inches in this general area.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: I'm gonna say 140. You know, 138 to 144 is a big, is a you know top end deer here. Now they could be five and six years old, but that's just what they get.
0: Right. Know? Yeah. And
1: my my second best scoring deer is a is a 145 10 I killed in 2018 under almost the same identical conditions that I, I killed on on the second. In the same exact spot, you know, those two deer are probably standing within six feet of each other when I killed them. So.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: this two years apart, but,
0: uh,
1: uh, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, we're getting some cool weather, and the colors are coming out. and uh,
0: Yeah, I'd uh, say yeah. we're in prime prime color right now, and we have uh. That
1: you guys are.
0: We're yeah. probably
1: about a week. We've got lots of yellows. And uh, some nice reds coming out, but I'd say we're we're about a week and we'll be in full here. But uh, you know, gonna get cold this weekend. A lot of rain supposed to roll in, so boy, a little bit of moisture makes the colors come up fast
0: too. Yeah, yeah, that's and we've we've been so dry. Did you guys get were you guys dry at the end of summer here?
1: We have been. You know, we, we did real good. We had moisture right up through August and maybe that first ten days of September, and then it just seemed like it shut off and. And every time it's rained around here, it's been like an eighth of an inch and and that sort of thing. It hasn't been a a nice rain. Right. uh, You
0: know,
1: you can't do a whole lot about it. And This year, I don't have hardly any acorns. We had some really late frost in the spring. So this is probably the least amount of acorns I've had on this farm in years. You know, so the deer are in the food plots. So I guess that's not a bad problem to have.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's probably almost positive. Yeah. Definitely well, positive. well, Jake, we appreciate you coming on. We're gonna to have to have you on again, maybe ten more times. Oh,
1: yeah, I, I enjoyed the conversation, Tyler. So
0: yeah, we appreciate it so much.
1: And uh, good luck hunting, huh?
0: Yeah. You too.